2: This is
3: the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his most recent, The Sickness Is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself is on the line with us, democracywork.info, and rdwolfwith2fs.com are his websites. So you can tweet him at ProfWolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Professor Wolf, the Fed has created money. You know, I mentioned the other day that the Fed had created $7 trillion and used it to, uh, to buy corporate bonds and stock, which the Fed had never done before. And somebody on Twitter said, what? Where'd you get that? That sounds crazy. So there's that assertion that the Fed is just like basically creating money out of thin air and using it to prop up corporate America and the stock market. The Treasury Department provides taxpayer money that gets appropriated by Congress that by and large bails out average working people like the CARES Act that gave everybody 600 bucks a week until it ran out a few months ago. And so what's the difference between the Fed and the money that they create and the Treasury Department or the Treasury of the United States and the money that Congress appropriates and spends? And why doesn't the Fed help average working people? And why does Congress and the Treasury Department, why is that they're the only place where average working people can get any kind of benefit?
4: The first thing is to understand the difference between them. What the Treasury can spend is money that only comes from one or the other of two sources. The Treasury spends either the money raised in taxes or the money borrowed from the public when it spends more than it takes in taxes. So the Treasury cannot create money. It can only spend money it has either received as taxes or borrowed. The federal reserve our central bank is not limited in that way they basically can create pretty much as much money as they want it used to be by printing it now it is more done by electronic means which simply means that they can create a bank balance for whoever they want to lend money to or as you put it if they go out and buy paper that's in the market bonds issued by companies, uh, bonds issued by the United States Treasury, when it borrows, well, then they can use simply uh, created money out of nothing uh, with which to buy those bonds. So then here's the link. When the Treasury borrows to be able to spend more than it takes in in taxes, it issues a bond, an IOU, to whoever it borrows from. That person or bank or corporation that has lent money to the Treasury can then turn around and take that bond and sell it to the Federal Reserve, which happens every day, and thereby tap into the basically limitless amount of money. So the two institutions are connected, but they have separate rules of what they can do. Notice that in both cases, The Treasury can only spend more than it takes in in taxes if rich people or banks or big corporations decide to lend to it. And likewise, the Federal Reserve can only create money if a corporation or the U.S. Treasury comes to it and says, hey, I need more money, create it and put it in my account. So that the key player here is the financial sector of the United States, the corporate sector. And that's in order to make sure that the government does not do what the private corporate sector, particularly its banks and insurance companies, are comfortable with what it does. It's a wonderful story in which the pretense of democracy, the pretense of a government representing all of us, is exposed to be a government very closely monitored and controlled and limited by the corporate sector, particularly the banking part.
3: So, $7 trillion is about a third of our GDP. Uh, Is it true that in the last year the Fed has created out of thin air $7 trillion and used much or all of that money to buy corporate bonds and stocks in the market or is that an exaggeration
4: that's a bit of an exaggeration it's probably only three or four trillion dollars but at at these levels of magnitude it really doesn't matter what is true is that this year the federal reserve our central bank has created more money than in any comparable time period in the history of the united states and it's not even close it's an explosion of credit to give every corner of corporate america the banks the insurance companies and now corporations in general the ability to get virtually limitless amounts of new money at interest rates barely above zero. This is uh, capitalism on life support from the government. That's why you don't hear a peep these days from the libertarians, because their idea is completely evaporated. We are not separate from, we're not fighting the government. We have a capitalism that could not last a week without an endless provision of this kind of money, ultimately from the Federal Reserve. Uh, The barrier, the lines between private capitalism on the one hand and the government support for private capitalism, that line is now so fuzzy as to be basically evaporated.
3: Now, the, the argument that defenders of the Fed make is that in the 1930s, the, the late 20s and early 30s, when we slid into the Great Depression, the Fed actually maintained a tight money policy. They did not do what this Fed is doing right now. And had they done what the Fed is doing right now, had they just created a bunch of money and poured it into the stock market and corporate bonds, it would have lifted the stock market, it would have revived the economy, and we wouldn't have had you know 15 years of a of, of worldwide disaster, essentially. Is that
4: true? No, I don't think so. Uh, and I think it's one of those hypotheticals that is used by people trying to defend an institution. There is something that the Great Depression did that, in my judgment, got us out of the Great Depression, that plus the war. And that is the government, the Treasury, really went to town to spend money. It created the Social Security system, giving every older American a check for the rest of their lives once they got to age 65. We'd never seen that before. They gave on, Employment compensation uh, federally, which we had never seen before. They created a minimum wage that required private employers to spend money they hadn't spent before. And then they had the federal jobs program. Notice, every one of those programs helped the people at the bottom. And we were able to get through that depression without a right wing turn, the way you had in Germany or Italy. So relying on the fiscal. Proved to be a way out for us. And it is only the conservative stranglehold on the American government that prevents us from using the successful activity the last time capitalism crashed to use it again now. Instead by relying on the Federal Reserve we are seeing inequality get much worse during the Great Depression. Inequality got much less in America. So we were better off as a society, certainly in terms of the mass of people using the policies we call fiscal policy than the reliance on the monetary policy that we are doing this Target.
3: Brilliant. Thank you so much for that explanation. Professor Richard Wolf, his new book, The Sickness is the System, when Capitalism Fails to Save Itself from Pandemics or itself fails to save us. The website, democracywork.info and REWF.com.
2: Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Tom.
3: Great talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman program. Mm-hmm. Cliff in Santa Clarita, California. Hey Cliff, what's on your mind today?
2: Good morning, Tom. Okay, millions of people lost their jobs, collecting unemployment. Right after Christmas, right, they're going to be losing their benefits. So is it possible, and this is on Trump's watch, and it's not just Democrats that are unemployed. So is it possible that Mr. Biden can step in and save the day and restore the benefits for these folks, like with, what do you call it, an executive order? Or is it going to have to go through Moscow Mitch to get any sort of relief for these people who are going to start the new year, you know, getting evicted and things like that? Can he just walk in and and restore benefits with the executive order? Do you know?
3: He may be able to do some limited things by executive order. For example, extend the moratorium on student debt repayment and extend the moratorium on evictions. He may be able to do that by executive order. It will almost certainly be challenged in the courts and you know the Supreme Court will shake it out, but that's what's happened. And that was actually done by the legislature, but that's a possibility. What he cannot do by executive order, Cliff, is he cannot raise taxes or spend money. That's the exclusive province of Congress. All, all legislation that either raises taxes or lowers taxes, for that matter, and that spends money has to originate in the House of Representatives and then has to go to the Senate where it has to pass and then it has to go to the president's desk for a signature before it becomes law. And that's the only way that money can be spent. So if Biden wants to extend the $600 a week or $300 a week or whatever, you know, if he wants to go back to the unemployment benefits that we had, the only way to do that would be to go through Congress, sadly. To, through Mitch. Yeah, that's, yeah It's we've got to go through Mitch. Yep, that's the story. Cliff, thank you. Philip in Sacramento. Hey, Philip, what's up?
5: Back to the election, Trump's stealing it. He is trying to steal this thing, and I think his ego just can't oh, take yeah. that he lost. It's
3: not that, um, that. He's fighting hope. for his life. He doesn't want to go to prison.
5: Oh, yeah, yeah. Would not you? Not to mention the, the millions he owes. Of course not, yeah. Um, yeah. I have hope, though, that the American people won't stand for it. There would be pandemonium on the streets if he did try to steal this. And I also saw a poll, I can't recall if it was from The Hill or CNN, but it said that 46% of Americans want him to concede now. Further, 32% want him to concede if he can provide credible evidence in court that this was massive voter fraud.
3: You know, it's astonishing, Philip, is that those numbers are as low as they are. Should be 95%
5: it should it should but we have to keep in context here you know that the, we're we're so polarized right now that you know i'm, I'm still thankful that it's 46 that say yeah concede right now yeah. he is not going to be able to steal this thing he and not only would he cause pandemonium in america the world's best or longest democracy just became a dictatorship international markets would crash it's going to cause global pandemonium he's not going to be able to do that they're not going to let him do that
3: I think you're right, Philip. I don't believe that he's going to be able to pull this off. But I do think what he is doing is he's writing the script for 2024 when yeah, you know, another a- fascist white guy who's not as stupid and not as criminal as Trump tries to do the Tom same Cotton. thing. We've got to look
5: is. at Tom Cotton. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. There you go. Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, and God only knows who else. Thank you, Philip. Our book today is uh, why women have better sex under socialism and other arguments for economic independence by kristen goadzee and this is from the introduction titled you might be suffering from capitalism the argument of this book can be summed up succinctly unregulated capitalism is bad for women and if we adopt some ideas from socialism women will have better lives if done properly socialism leads to economic independence better labor conditions better work family balance and yes even better sex Finding a way into a better future requires learning from the mistakes of the past, including a thoughtful assessment of the history of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. That's it. If you like the idea of such outcomes, then come along for an exploration of how we might change things. If you're dubious because you don't understand why capitalism as an economic system is uniquely bad for women, and if you doubt that there could ever be anything good about socialism, this short treatise will provide some illumination. If you don't give a wit about women's lives because you're a gynophobic right-wing internet troll, save your money and go back to your parents' basement right now. This isn't the book for you. Of course, some might argue that unregulated capitalism sucks for almost everyone, but I want to focus on how capitalism disproportionately harms women. Competitive labor markets discriminate against those whose reproductive biology makes them primarily responsible for childbearing. Today, this means humans who get pink hats in the hospital and the letter F next to the name on the birth certificate as if we've already failed by not coming into the world as a boy. Competitive labor markets also devalue those expected to be the primary caregivers of children. Although societal attitudes have evolved in this regard, our idealization of motherhood means that most of us still believe that baby needs mama a whole lot more than papa, at least until the child is old enough to play sports. Others will argue that unregulated capitalism is not bad for all women. Yes, for those women lucky enough to sit at the top of the income distribution, the system works pretty well. Although women at the executive level still face gender pay gaps and remain underrepresented in leadership positions, on the whole, things aren't too shabby for the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. Of course, sexual harassment still hinders progress, even for those at the top, and too many women believe that if you want to run with the big dogs, you may have to suck it up and ignore the groping and unwanted advances. And race plays an important role as well. White women do a lot better in aggregate than do women of color. But when we look at society as a whole, on average, women are comparatively worse off in countries where markets are less encumbered by regulation, taxation, and public enterprises than they are in nations where state revenues support greater levels of redistribution and larger social safety nets. Choose your data source, and you find the same story. Unemployment and poverty plague women with children. Employers discriminate against women without children because they might have them in the future. In the United States in 2013, women over the age of 65 suffered from poverty at much greater rates than men and dominated those in the category of extreme poverty. Globally, women face higher rates of economic deprivation. Women are often the last to be hired and the first to be fired in cyclical downturns. And when they do find employment, bosses pay them less than men. When states need to slash government spending on education, health care, or old age pensions, mothers, daughters, sisters, and wives must pick up the slack, diverting their energy to care for the young, the sick, and the elderly. Capitalism thrives on women's unpaid labor in the home because women's care work supports lower taxes. The Soviet launch of Sputnik in 1957 spurred American leaders to rethink the costs of maintaining traditional gender roles. They feared the state socialists enjoyed an advantage in technological development, and why women have better sex under socialism. so a few other things in the news that relate to all this that i wanted to share with you and you know a little bit of a deeper dive Allie rosenberg is writing over at the washington post the headline of congress doesn't act and congress is about to recess for the thanksgiving holiday If Congress doesn't act, 12 million Americans could lose unemployment aid after Christmas. This is what's going to happen. More than half, this is, I'm just quoting from Eli Rosenberg's piece in the Washington Post. More than half of the 21.1 million people currently on benefits due to deadlines Congress chose when it passed the CARES Act back in March. Now, the assumption back in March was, you know, this thing is only going to last six or eight months. We'll get it under control. We'll figure it out. It'll be all good. By March, you had numerous countries, Vietnam, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan. They already largely had it under control. China had largely gotten COVID under control. But, so we thought, okay, we can do this. So Congress and the CARES Act said, you know, it expires the week after Christmas. And in addition to that, another 4.4 million Americans have already burned through all their unemployment benefits. So you got 21.1 million who are on the verge. Four and a half million who've already lost it. The benefits cliff on December 26 includes an additional 7.3 million workers who are on pandemic unemployment assistance. The supplemental insurance for gig and self-employed workers. These are all parts of the CARES Act that Nancy Pelosi got out of the House. And 4.6 million people on pandemic emergency unemployment compensation. This is all part of that piece of legislation that passed the House back in March. Now, you know, the HEROES Act passed the House in May which would extend all these things well into next year. But, and it's passed the House of Representatives. It's halfway to being law. But Mitch McConnell refuses to even have a hearing on it, much less hold of vote. In the article, he says, nobody's talking about this. We're just careening into this huge cliff, and it's like it's not even happening. People are going to be unable to afford basic stuff like food and rent, and this could just devastate the economy. Nationwide eviction moratorium, by the way, also part of the CARES Act, that expires December 31st. So on New Year's Day, over 10 million Americans, the eviction proceedings will begin if Congress doesn't act. Just, yeah, I mean, just think about that. Also, this was shocking. The Sun, this is a British newspaper. This is based on research that was done in Great Britain in the United Kingdom, where they have a national health care system, the NHS, the National Health Service, which has centralized, a centralized database, which includes every single person in Great Britain. And so if they wanna know epidemiology, if they wanna understand how things like, say, pandemics spread, what are the most dangerous sources? They are doing contact tracing and they are doing testing in the United Kingdom. And so they've come up with some pretty good numbers. And the headline here, the most common place to catch COVID, the supermarket. This is from their contact tracing. You know, they just contacted 128,808 people who had COVID and asked, where were you? How were you exposed? And by and large, people could figure this out. At the top of the list, it was the supermarket. People who the only thing that they had done other than sheltering in place was go to the supermarket. 18% of all the infections came from the supermarket. 12% came from secondary schools kids picking it up at school. 10% came from primary schools, elementary schools. Now, those kids are less likely to carry the virus, but still 10%. And then it gets down into single digits. 3% came from visiting a hospital or visiting somebody in the hospital or going to the hospital for a procedure. 2.8% came from visiting an elderly care home. 2.5% came from going to college. 2.2% came from working in a warehouse. 1.8% came from a nursery school preschool. 1.6% came from a pub or bar, which is pretty shocking. I figured that number would be much higher, although the pubs and bars have been closed for months, so that's probably why it's so low. And, you know, it goes down from there. But 18%, 18 18.3%, almost 200,000 people that the NHS tracked on this thing got their COVID from going to the supermarket. Be careful. I have not walked into a supermarket since March 10th. I haven't walked into any building except my house since March 10th, and I have no intention of doing it until I can get a vaccine. You can get things delivered without generally much problem, or, you know, we have gone to supermarkets and had them bring the stuff out to the car. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell has been blocking legislation. Robert Reich tweeted this out this morning. Mitch McConnell has been blocking legislation to restore the Voting Rights Act for 347 days. Meanwhile, the Republicans are spreading baseless claims about voter fraud in predominantly black cities, setting the stage to suppress the black vote ahead of the next election, 2022. Connect the dots, yeah, you think? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Meanwhile, Crooked Kelly Loeffler and Crooked David Perdue, they're both, these two hustlers are getting rich off being senators. It's insane. Alan in Seattle. Hey, Alan, what's on your mind today?
2: Oh, well, I got that lovely idea that uh, was going to cut the uh, Social Security contributions. And I started looking, and I said, well, what's the comparison between the Social Security income level and the life expectancy? And there's like six numbers here the richest guys working the last 35 years would have $368,000 in their social security account. The poorest guys would have just over 40,000. But the poorest guys are only expected to live till 73 and the richest guys are going to live till 87 if they retire at 66. The single guy is going to get over $425,000 over what he put in on the rich one. On the poor guy, he's only going to get 13,000. This is a Ponzi scheme. We need to take the cap off the Social Security.
3: Yeah, it's not a Ponzi scheme, but I do agree with you. We do need to take the cap off Social Security. It needs to be a more progressive system.
2: You bet it does. I mean, (laughs) what was it that Alan Grayson said? The Republican health care plan? Don't Mm -hmm. get sick if you do, die quickly.
3: So. Right, yeah, that's exactly what Anyway, that's what he my said.
2: rant for the day.
3: Okay, Alan, good job. Thanks a lot for the call. Nick in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hey, Nick, what's up?
1: Yeah, hi, Tom. On capitalism, I'd like to defend that, too. It's not so much capitalism. I heard a wonderful quote from the John Lewis funeral. A uh, reverend described uh, capitalism as plantation
5: capitalism, and that's the problem. Yeah. It's not regulated. And I just wanted your yeah, input
3: I, on I like that. I think that that's a, a phrase that, particularly for many not well-educated white Americans, will simply cause them to go, wow, what are you talking about? but know. unregulated capitalism, raw capitalism, brutal capitalism, brute force capitalism, let them starve capitalism. I mean there's a lot of ways to describe the American version of capitalism and in contrast to the uh, Danish or German or French version of capitalism which still allows for investment. I mean the one thing that that just haunts me in these conversations is that you know I've started probably eight or nine or ten businesses in my life. I know I've started seven of them that actually became businesses and five of those actually became fairly successful businesses that were successful enough that Louise and I could sell them off and retire for a year or two and then go back and start another one. And in several of those cases I started them with borrowed money or with an invest in one case with an investor who I bought out after a year. And uh, that's capitalism. I mean that's how capitalism works. And there was nothing nasty about that. There was nothing exploitative about that. I refer to that as free enterprise, actually. But you know, somebody putting up capital so that somebody else can start a company is pretty much the definition of capitalism, or at least one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is that the person who puts up the money gets to live off the income from that money but i think that you know it's like football you could say football is a terrible game people have head injuries well that's why we have helmets you have rules that prevent people from being injured by things and so if somebody wants to play the game of business we'll have rules and we'll have a you know a regulated form of capitalism unregulated capitalism that's called feudalism or neo-feudalism nick excellent point all thank you very much for the call dolores in lake bay washington hey dolores what's up
6: I'm just curious, Tom. I want that list of all the corporations that don't pay taxes. So I've got something to say that we can pay for what the Democrats want to do if those companies would pay taxes. So where do I get that
3: list? That's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head, Dolores. Uh, You know, it's it's kind of a moving target, but I think you could probably just take the 500 largest corporations in America and safely assume that probably 80 percent of them fall into that category. But I'm sorry, I don't have a glib or easy or off the top of my head answer. Economic Policy Institute is a really good group and a really good source for a lot of that kind of information. And you might want to check there. There are other good groups. Let me ponder that. And if I can find a source for that, Dolores, I'll rant about it. Thank you for the call. Excellent question. Henry in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Hey, Henry, what's on your mind? Okay, the
7: word socialism. You had an explanation that explained Bernie Sanders' use of the word, to which I fully agree with you. But the opposing party grabs the word and the sound echoes across the nation of socialism slash communism, and it is weaponized to no extent. Yeah. And that's scary. Walter Cronkite well, once already said, there are too many people who do not have enough education to be allowed to vote.
3: I'm not sure Walter Cronkite ever said that, but there are a lot of people who don't understand what socialism means and and part of that is because socialism has meant different things to different people over the years. Socialism was a word that Karl Marx uses. In his book, Das Kapital, and is also used, uh, although not as much as communism, in the book that he and Engels, the pamphlet that they co-authored back in, I think it was 1856 or something like that, uh, titled The Communist Manifesto. But he uses the word socialism in Das Kapital to describe a system that became the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and that we today refer to as communism. And that's when, you know, when Republicans accuse Democrats of being a socialist, what they're referring to is that is really communism, um, you know, because they always point to Fidel Castro or, you know, Venezuela or the Soviet Union. Yep. But when Bernie is using the word, he's pointing to Denmark and Sweden and Norway and Germany and France, those countries that all <laughs> proudly call themselves democratic socialist countries. So, no. yeah, Henry, we, we, need, we, need, we need to educate America. And in the meantime, probably the corporate Democrats who are saying that progressive Democrats shouldn't use the word socialist. You know, there's probably a grain of truth in there. Why hand them a club to hit you with, right? Stephen in Kirkland, Washington. Hey, Stephen, what's on your mind?
1: Hoping you can explain beyond Mark Twain's quote about being it easier to fool someone than to convince their fools and Dunning-Kruger, how is it that you have little under half the country basically scared to death of socialism as if a bunch of guys with their GEDs are gaming us for social welfare fraud while the corporatocracy deals us blind with corporate socialism right out there in public as an ROI on campaign graft to both parties, actually? I've been kind of baffled at that because debated certainly a lot of people online who think single issue socialism is the main reason to vote against Joe Biden or any democrat for that matter and they're usually people who don't have a pot to piss in because the game is so rigged against them and you can mention the 581 page peer reviewed study from Princeton University Saying that we are now an oligarchy and no longer comprise a democratic republic, and if you've never been male, heterosexual, white, and rich, you've never really lived in a, a pure democratic republic. I'm just wondering your thoughts and the explanation or the smoking gun on how come this is true.
3: I think that a I you know I don't disagree with your diagnosis, Steve, or your and and or analysis, but I think that this was a large part of the appeal of both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in 2016. Both of them, Bernie was telling the truth and speaking what he had been living for the last 50 years, Donald Trump was lying through his teeth. But both of them were saying the system is rigged. The system is rigged for rich people. The system is rigged against working-class people. The system is rigged for big corporations. And, you know, we need to unrig the system. And I think that When you try to say to a Trump supporter that the system's not rigged or, you know, which is part of the problem right now with the electoral system, you know, with the elections, because that kind of plays into Trump's original narrative. When you try to say the system's not rigged, they know that, you know, you're just wrong. I mean, the system is rigged. You know i mean our tax code if nothing else is rigged you know our limitations on liabilities for corporations our campaign finance laws that limit what you and i can give but uh, basically don't limit what billionaires and giant corporations can give all of those things are rigged and they need to be unrigged we need to return some normalcy and safety and small d democracy really to america And I think the average working person gets it, that they've been screwed by both parties for a long time. But the Republican Party under Trump, and this is the wonder of populism, is that Donald Trump was able to say, yeah, you've been screwed. And nobody at the time was really in a loud way saying, yeah, (laughs) Trump is one of those guys who's screwing you. I mean, he's got over 3,000 small businesses who sued him for not paying his damn bills. He is the epitome of the people who are screwing you. But the reality is that In large part, thanks to the Supreme Court's decision in 76 and 78, Buckley and Bilotti and Citizens United in 2010, thanks to these decisions, rich people, once again, basically completely own the political process or largely own the political process. There are a few politicians out there who can make it with money from, from, uh, you know, small contributions, and we're going to see how that plays out in Georgia now. But I think that that's really what's going on, Stephen. I like your analysis, but I think that the problem is that we have to acknowledge that the system has been corrupted. Daryl in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Hey, Darrell, what's on your mind?
7: Yes, hi, good afternoon. As hopeful as I am about the recent election results and hope they stand, I'm losing hope just based on the double standard that's been in place in this country with uh, citizens that are law-abiding and pay taxes versus the electorate and corporations. And I'll give you some examples. If I ignore a subpoena, there's a consequence. Apparently, if an elected official ignores its opinion there is no consequence. In addition, if I stole money from a charity and it was proven that I did, I'm likely to have been calling you from a prison phone and not my own phone right now. And then countless other things like a major bank being found to have opened over 8,000 illegal accounts and still doing business and making quite a bit of money within the system, the the, the, uh, ignoring the Hatch Act, the Emollients Clause, all this other stuff. So I'm hoping you can give me a little bit more hope that maybe uh, the balance will swing back the other way, where the electorate is serving the the people and not the other way around.
3: You mean the elected officials? Yes, absolutely, Darrell. Completely with you. And this is You know, this is, again, one of points that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders campaigned fairly heavily on, was let's clean up the system, let's get the fat cats out of the system, left, right, and in between. Let's flush some of this corporate money out of the system, and let's do away with that double standard. And the double standard isn't just... You know, rich corporations like Wells Fargo skating while they throw a few of their employees to the wolves and the CEOs take giant bonuses with your uh, tax dollars with the bailout money or the covid money or whatever you call it. You know, the PPP money, but that this is something that's been going on for a long, long time and that there's also a a huge racial component to this that boils all the way down from, you know, big corporations all the way down to who goes to jail for drugs, for example. You know, white people who get Uh busted with pot, no big deal. Black people who get busted with cocaine, they're in jail for the next 15, 20 years. And then the ultimate scam, and this just blew my mind, the ultimate scam was when Charles Koch and his friends came out and said, we need to have criminal justice reform. And there's not that many federal prisoners, right? I mean, most people who are in prison are in state prisons, and most people who are in jails are in, you know, county and and state jails. There are some federal prisoners, you know, I I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's a relatively small number. And the so-called criminal justice reform kind of threw a bone to some of the uh, average criminals who are in federal prison who arguably shouldn't be there or who were, you know, more heavily penalized. But the biggest part of it was this whole Renz maya thing where they said we're going to change the way the law works with regard to executives. You now have to prove if a CEO makes a decision, knowing that it might cause people to die, makes a decision and people die. uh, You can no longer sue that executive because while that executive may have known that those people died, he didn't intend for them to die. It used to be that just knowing people would die if you did side-saddle gas tanks on a Ford F-150, you know, constructed the gas tank in the back of a Chevette so that it would blow up, or a Pinto. It used to be that that would be enough to get the executive. Well, so now, with the so-called criminal justice reform, they completely changed the standards. I mean, it's just nuts. It's just nuts. Daryl, thank you for the call. Cassandra in Camus, Washington. Hey, Cassandra, thanks for listening to X-Ray FM. What's up? No, you sent said this on several
8: occasions about the media and the fact that, you know, a lot of deregulations have happened around it concerning no longer having to present both sides of an issue. But I, I wanna basically say that there's gotta be something, and I want your opinion on this, some way that we can, through our representatives or some obviously after we get Trump out, try to remedy this so that we equate the multi-headed monster that the media has now become an unregulated childish monster to the dangers of smoking cigarettes, profanity on radio, not being able to yell fire in a crowded theater. These are all things that we no longer allow. You know, you you can't put a cigarette out on, on TV. Why? Because it's been proven to be unhealthy for your health. It's unhealthy for our bodies. You can't say certain words on a radio. Why? Because it is considered You know, inappropriate and so forth and obviously younger listeners and so on and yelling fire in a theater unless there's an actual fire flames licking up the back, you could cause a stampede and hurt people, crush people, what have you. These are all things that we recognize as being dangerous to our society for various reasons. We need to somehow equate the unregulated media's ability, especially during elections, to do the same thing. They should at least have to do the very minimal of providing, you know, both sides of a an issue or a candidate, candidates for an office, so that we don't end up with this, because this has become a fundamental way of people becoming educated in this country, which is sad, but it is. and. I have, um, not that it matters to this discussion, but I have a degree in history. And when you go to college, the first thing you will learn is that you have to have multiple sources on any given topic, whether you're researching science, history, anything. This needs to be made clear that
3: this is a requirement in order to get real information. The problem is if at the level of government, we decide that we're gonna make sure that the media is telling the truth. What happens when that government gets taken over by somebody like Donald Trump and I they know, have their own opinion about what the truth is? Right. Well,
8: that's why I said multiple perspectives have to be represented. Yeah. And I, that's I, why I think I, that I, needs to be out there because how do you I, fix the yeah, problem if it's only one piece of information and you can't see that there are other sides to it? How do you start fixing any problem?
3: Yeah, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. And I think that, you know, a lot of damage was done by Reagan repealing the Fairness Doctrine in 87. A lot of damage was done by Clinton signing the Telecommunications Act of 96. And these are things that we need to take on. And breaking up, you know, huge media would be at the top of my list. But but it's not going to be easy. It's definitely not going to be easy. Cassandra, thank you for raising an important issue.
6: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
3: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Steve in Orlando, Florida. Hey, Steve, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today?
9: I wanted to complain against Facebook for rejecting our organization's political ad. For like three weeks they held us up, even though we provided all the documentation. You know, your viewers may not know. They required us to provide scans of the IRS forms and federal ID number and state of Florida corporate forms and the bank statement and even my personal info, including a copy of my driver's license. And then we waited eight days for a passcode in the postal mail, that we you know that i entered and anyway they kept rejecting the ad so we finally yesterday we spent six hundred and fifty dollars and and instead of on facebook we we put it on uh... in the orlando sentinel and all it was was an ad saying to vote for our endorsed candidates the national organization for women so i'm just really angry that they did all this and not only that they did approve an ad that I used to run up until a few months ago, about a Pro-Choice Now t-shirt. With It was pretty radical. No apology, no compromise, no restriction. And they allowed me to run it. And then when I tried to run it a month ago, they refused.
3: Right, right. Facebook, Google, generally speaking, social media and big tech are not your friend if you're a progressive, Steve. Back, I think it was five, six, seven years ago or thereabouts, Google changed their algorithms so that while they were, you know, if you search for a particular term, right-wing websites like the Daily Caller would pop right up to the top. But Alternet, which was at the time one of the most popular progressive websites out there, did not. They just froze out Alternet. And as a result, Alternet uh, ended up getting sold. I mean, you know, it was like it's still around. The guy who bought it, you know, is running it and doing a fine job. But it's not, it's not getting anything close to the traffic it used to get. Facebook has become, you know, the go-to place for you know, right wing trolls and gun nuts. And it's a very unfortunate thing. It, it, it really influences. Well, in- uh, Steve, whoop! I'm sorry, Steve, I, uh, slight delay there. I, did, I thought you were done. Jonathan in Portland. Hey, Jonathan, what's up?
10: Hi, Tom. You know, I think your program does a fantastic service for democracy because I think your program promotes thoughtfulness. And I think thoughtfulness is the enemy of authoritarianism. I was listening to the author Masha Gesson the other day and she was talking about life under under Soviet Russia and authoritarianism and specifically how people are not allowed to have opinions. But in this country we have the opposite. We have a a proliferation of opinions, all acquired superficially, without much thought, and all acted upon reflexively. And in my estimation, that is a direct result of Commercialism and advertising and marketing and people don't want you to be reflective. They don't want you to be thoughtful. There was a great interview, actually, with David Letterman and, and Bill O'Reilly, where Bill O'Reilly is bullying David Letterman about the Iraq War and asking him if he wants us to be wants us to win, and uh, Letterman says, "You know, I can't answer that because I'm thoughtful," and the audience laughed. But you know. You're providing a venue where people can be thoughtful and and consider a whole variety of of issues, And, and that's really what this country needs.
3: I think that one of the variables that doesn't get discussed enough about why there is so little thoughtfulness and actual dialogue, you know, Socratic or even Platonic dialogue, is the algorithms. We have, you know, Facebook and Twitter and other social media and increasingly, you know, marketing systems and whatnot where we are slicing and dicing our population and then we are actually encouraging people to live in little bubbles where, you know, if I go on Facebook or if I go on Twitter, I almost never see conservatives. If conservatives go on Facebook or Twitter, they almost never see people like me. And as a consequence, we're not put in a situation where we have to talk to each other where our ideas can clash, where we can even have a reasonable discussion, or even a fight, you know, I mean, not well, that, a physical you know, fight. Isn't, isn't that a form of tribalism?
10: I and mean, that's the most primitive form of, of human society.
3: I think it's the exploitation of human nature for profit by big tech. That's how I would describe it. Yes, yeah. tribalism yeah. is part of human nature. Absolutely. And But what they're doing is they're exacerbating this. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're talking, you know, why there's even a conversation about, you know, America having a second civil war, is that our electronic media, in particular our social media, have been using these algorithms to slice and dice us in ways that are hugely profitable. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is worth $70 billion. You know, the, the, the Google guy is worth billions and billions of dollars. Uh, but is it good for society? Is it good for America? Is it good for democracy—small D democracy? I think that that's a conversation. I, I think you could build a case that in some ways it could be, but I think you can also build a case that in many ways it's absolutely not, and it's a conversation that we need to be having. Jonathan, thank you for the acknowledgement. I appreciate it, and thank you for your call, Vic in Stockton, California. Hey, Vic, what's up?
5: You know, whoever creates and packages the message controls the minds of the electorate, ultimately their vote. The Republicans have known this for years and therefore a massive art of manipulation of propaganda to the the detriment of our society, unfortunately. So I wanted to ask you, why haven't the Democrats learned to use the same marketing techniques against the Republicans over the last 40 years, so they can resurrect the Democratic brand, which has been for, for decades so successful? Thanks, Tom.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Vic. I think they should. I wrote a book in 2008 titled Cracking the Code, which was about political communication and how the Democrats should do that. I think one of the largest problems is that when Clinton and Al Fromm started the Democratic Leadership Council back in 1991, it split the Democratic Party into two pieces, into the corporate side and into the progressive side. And so it's been really hard to pull the Democrats together into one particular you know, cohesive messaging unit ever since. That is changing as the progressives are rising and the corporate Dems are falling. But I think that's the biggest problem. The Republican Party doesn't suffer from such factionalism in large part because the same billionaires all across the Republican Party are owning politician after politician after politician. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Cracking the Code, How to Win Hearts, Change Minds, and Restore America's Original Vision. This is from the introduction, page one. My wife Louise and I live atop 30 feet of water, 100 feet from shore, in a houseboat on a river in Portland, Oregon. Or at least we did when I wrote this book. One day, I stepped out our back door onto the floating deck that serves as our backyard and found myself confronting a very upset Canada goose. He bobbed his head up and down, lifted his wings to make his body look larger and more intimidating, and he ran straight at me, hissing and trying to nip at me. Observing this behavior, my comedian friend Swami Beyond Ananda, Steve Behrman, who was visiting us that week, named the bird Goosalini. I had no idea why this psycho goose was attacking me, but there was no mistake that Gussolini was trying to communicate. Stay inside that house and don't come out. I got the message, but I didn't stay inside. Instead, every time I went out to water the plants on my deck, I brought a broom with me to fight off Gussolini. I found out what was going on a week later when I learned from my neighbor that female goose had settled on her back deck just a few feet from our own and was sitting on a nest. I realized that Gussolini must have had been the proud papa protecting his territory, and I stopped swatting at him with my broom. Gussolini has a lot to tell us about communication strategies. Even though he was just doing what a gander does when he wants a predator to leave, draw attention to himself and away from his mate, attack first and ask questions later, he was able to communicate the go-away part of his message to me pretty well. We all communicate all the time, even when we don't give much thought to what we're saying or how we're saying it. Because Gussolini was unable to use what we would call rational powers of persuasion, he communicated by going straight for the more primitive parts of my brain, the parts we shared as human and goose the center of our gut feelings. First time Gussolini attacked, I backed off because he was successful in communicating an intent to harm me, which caused me to feel fear, the most primal and visceral of human emotions. The first key to unlocking the communication code is to understand that when we communicate, feeling comes first. Emotions will always trump intellect, at least in the short term. This emotive form of communication, however, ultimately didn't get Gussolini the response he wanted. On its own, the attack wasn't very persuasive. Instead of shooing me away, Gussolini made me angry. Effective communicators know how to get the response they want because they understand how to tailor a message to the person who's listening. They know the second key to unlocking the communication code is that the meaning of a communication is the response you get. Because Gussolini couldn't tell me his story, I had to imagine his story for myself. The first story I came up with was that he was simply a psycho goose, trying to harm me for no reason I could understand. second story I came up with, after talking to my neighbor, was the story of a dad protecting his soon-to-be-hatched goslings. Both stories accurately described what was happening, but the stories led to very different endings. The psycho goose made me angry. The dad goose made me feel protective of Gussolini himself. In this book, I call such stories maps, and the world the stories describe as the territory— The third key to unlocking the communication code is, therefore, the map is not the territory. Each story captures a different piece of reality. No one story captures it all. The key to effective communication is to find the best story to use to convey your understanding of the world to the greatest number of people. In politics, we tell each other stories all the time. Think about it. Politics is really nothing more than a large set of stories. The United States of America began as a story that the founders and framers told about a society that could live in harmony around the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The country was held together after the Great Depression and through a war by a story told by Franklin Roosevelt, which he called the New Deal. Ronald Reagan told a very different story, one we're still in, that he called the free market story. In Reagan's story, our corporate CEOs should run our society instead of our elected representatives because, as Reagan pointed out and probably believed, Quote, the best go- at minds are not in government. If they were, business would hire them away. End of quote from Reagan. Most of the stories we hear in the media today are scary. We're told to be afraid because the world is a bad place and people are untrustworthy. Every goose is a Gussolini without understanding why. These scary stories are profitable to our infotainment industry and to the politicians who are typically allied with the barons of the infotainment industry. There is a different story, however, in which every Gussolini is a proud papa, It is a story of a world that is interconnected and of people who are fundamentally good. This is actually the traditional American liberal story, which has been told and understood since the first telling of it during the Enlightenment by thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, John Locke, and Thomas Jefferson. It's the story that reaches directly back to the founding of this country. My aim with this book is to give you the tools to tell the liberal story, and to tell it well. I'll show you how the process of communication is coded, actually hardwired into our brains, and help you crack that code to become a brilliant communicator. First, though, a few concepts it's important to master. Everybody wants the best outcomes, and their behavior reflects the best tools they have to achieve those outcomes. Another way of saying this is that people always make what they think are the best choices given the circumstances and the tools they have. All behavior has, at its roots, the goal of a positive outcome. As a practical statement, this means that conservatives and liberals are both working toward the best world possible. And then it goes on from there, how do we differentiate this, how do we communicate this? Uh, The book is Cracking the Code, it's about the communication code. And picking up your phone calls, Charles in Elkhart, Indiana. Hey Charles, what's on your mind?
0: Yeah, I think the Democrats missed out on a golden opportunity when Trump talks about the economy. And it sounds crazy, but COVID actually kind of bailed Trump out because in 2019, economic analysts had already projected that we were facing a recession in late 2020, right around the election, to the first quarter of 2021. And the Fed chairman, I can't remember which one of the financial newspapers I was reading, this was in 2019, he was talking about the revenues were so bad that if there was some type of economic disturbance or something, they would be limited in their ability to fight it, which they've somehow come up with the money to be able to fight it. I, they didn't know it was going to be COVID, but the economic disturbance turned out to be COVID, and somehow or other, they've come up with the money to fight it. Now, all this was in 2019, and everybody's talking about how great the economy was, and I'm like, well, yeah, the unemployment rate was low, but then what was going on with the revenues and the deficit and whatnot? You know, nobody paid attention to that
3: yeah well in fact by february the recession had begun every expectation was that the first quarter would be clearly in recession you know would be measurable recession it only kind of largely got ignored because of COVID. yeah spot on we would be in a major recession or at least a significant recession right now because we had just completed the longest expansion in in the history of the united states you know as a result of you know bush crashing the economy through his deregulation back in 2008. And then, you know, Obama putting it back together in his stimulus. You know, I think your point is well taken, Charles. It's very well taken. and something that, yeah, you're, you're welcome. Good point. Thanks. Karen in Winter Haven, Florida. Hey, Karen, what's up?
6: Hey, Tom. I wanted to go over with you a connection back to our youth. Our birthdays are almost the same. Of the new frontier in the great society. Okay. That's what excited me in my youth michael harrington for people
3: who don't know karen if i could just insert the new frontier was jack kennedy's slogan for you know reinventing america and then after he was assassinated lyndon johnson's was the great society go ahead
6: correct michael harrington had written the book i believe it was poverty in america and americans were ashamed at uh, in this land of plenty, which we were kind of thriving after world war ii that this poverty existed That program in the Great Society, until the Republicans dismantled it, did reduce poverty by 50%. I believe the Green New Deal Mm -hmm. will create the same kind of enthusiasm in the youth. I think the one thing we do need to do is have each community get together for meetings on how they want to attack the climate change in their own community so that we bring the the community in and not make it so top-heavy.
3: You mean drive it from the bottom-up kind of thing?
6: Yeah. Well, you know how when you're going to do a a program, you really need to involve the community you're
3: going to do it in. Yeah, you have to. If you don't, it'll blow up in your face uh, ultimately. And that's what's happened to the Republicans. Karen, thank you. Brilliant. Uh, Spot on. I mean, these are precarious times we live in. They are pregnant with great danger, but also with great opportunity. Al in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hey, Al, what's up?
11: Hi, Tom. I've lived in Milwaukee since 1965. I've learned that back in the 20s, 30s, and up into the 50s, maybe even beyond, Milwaukee was a socialist government. One of the previous mayors was Dan Holmes, then there was Frank Zeidler, and they accomplished incredible things. And not only that, but they actually had a kind of a social security type of program that I understand FDR borrowed from to create our current social security I hear people complaining or saying or using horror stories you know, about, oh, socialism won't work in the Americas. Nonsense. It saved lives. It mm-hmm. saved the economy. The America uh, Milwaukee became the machine, one of the machine shops of the world. So people who can become creative and create wealth for themselves under socialism is a possibility. I hear all this fear tactics. It upsets me because I've seen that there was something done beautifully in Milwaukee.
3: Yeah, I agree, Alan. A lot of the folks who, in the late part of the 1800s and the early part of the 20th century, came from Scandinavia. My grandfather and grandmother both came from Norway in 1917 and settled in northern Michigan, up in Newego near Grand Rapids. There's a large Norwegian community there. There are large Swedish and other Scandinavian communities in Minnesota and in Wisconsin that Betty White makes fun of on the old Golden Girls reruns that Louise and I are getting hooked on now as a way of just checking out from this madness. And they brought socialism with them. You know, they brought this community sense well, with them. And you know, it's a good thing. In
11: Milwaukee, there was the term was the old German socialists.
3: Yeah, because, yeah, uh, actually.
11: A, I guess a revolution in Germany that failed, but a lot of these people came to the Americas and to the United States and settled in Milwaukee. And there were some really inventive, creative people that were part of that immigration. So, anyway, you're right.
3: Yeah, and at that point, what we would call democratic socialism, not communism, but democratic socialism, was starting to become, you know, very well developed in the Scandinavian and Northern European countries and in Germany as well. You're absolutely right.